Okay, everybody, uh, here we are at season two, episode four of the Mind Hunter Companion. As always, uh, my co host is Peter, and I am Doug. Welcome, Doug. Welcome. Here we are at episode uh, four, uh, directed by uh, Andrew Dominic, a story by Josh Donnan and Courtney Miles, from a teleplay by uh, Jason Johnson and Colin Loro and Josh Donan. A lot happens in this episode. This is a very busy, uh, busy show. Yep. Um, So uh, let's just jump in. So we begin uh, with a man driving around asking kids uh, to help him with some sort of errand and get in his car for just a few dollars. Right. You think it's basically the Atlanta killer. Exactly. Right. Initially. Um, And then you see Agent Smith try pretty much the same thing. Um, And, you know, he gets a very, very negative and hostile reaction, whereas the black man in the car is is able to get plenty of black kids to get in the car for a very meager amount of money. And we see that this forms part of Holden's theory that the killer is black because a white person would be noticed too easily in the neighborhoods where the children are disappearing. That's true. And that, you know, it's well illustrated, but do you really think Agent Smith could pick up anybody in a neighborhood (laughs) full of cloned Agent Smiths? I, I, I like the way they have him wearing like a powder blue short sleeve dress shirt. <laughs> He's not the smoothest cat. Yeah, and and as you as we'll see in the next couple of episodes, his star is definitely falling in the behavioral science unit. Aside from his one theoretical contribution a couple of episodes ago, he's not exactly super well liked. Yeah. <clears throat> he uh he doesn't do so well. Um, so we cut back uh, to Bill at Quantico, who's... Uh, well, first, they, you realize that basically it's not actually the Atlanta killer that's driving oh, around in yeah, the car. It's just another agent. It's the agent that they were working with, right? Right, the good agent. So the, the FBI agent in Atlanta, the black guy who's, who's really sharp. And got and, turned um, down for the BSU. And he basically picked up a car full of kids and... For I think two dollars. Yeah, they're trying to sort of prove that it can happen and that it's easy to pick them up. Uh, and then, so then we cut back to Bill at Quantico, who's looking at some uh, photos of uh, a bound individual, um, and he tries to get in touch with Detective Pat McGraw, who turns out to be dead. And are these, you know, it's a little hard to tell what case this is. is are these the pics of the boy in the house that the wife was selling? I thought it was Kansas City. It's, I don't know, I couldn't tell. Like, it's just, it's just like some photos of hands bound and everything else is far away. I mean, maybe this is the Otero family from Kansas City, but I could not tell from the pictures exactly what case no. he is working on. I don't know. Could you tell? I couldn't. No. <clears throat> and then, um, oh, you know what? It's Ada Jeffries. That's who it is. It's the Ada Jeffries case. Um, so then we uh, we transition to uh, Wendy and Holden and Agent Smith 
are all talking about the 11 missing children in Atlanta for which they have uh, no suspects. Right, and Holden's kind of driving things. Right, and I have to point out, because it is so unbelievably glaring, that Wendy's makeup is off the hook. Like, Wendy's serum Billy Rubin appears to be 12. Like, (laughs) she is so, like, yellow-looking. Like, it it must be something in the color correction, because there's no way they could have had her looking like this on set. Like, but it's it got to gl- be digital, though. Like, they must shoot I'm, this digitally. I'm telling you, though, it is glaring. But like, how can she look that way and nobody else? Some of them look kind of orange, but nobody looks like Wendy. I mean, she looks like a light bulb. Hmm. I mean, it's I really guess. go back and look at it. Like, I don't in the even scene, remember noticing. In the scene where they're uh, in, in the BSU and they're talking about Atlanta, like, she is yeller. Anyway, shoo. Um, but uh, I think she's just got real bears. <laughs> she's up all night. No, we just got to look at her. Uh, you know, her sure, sclera her conjugated, right? See if yeah. her conjugated Billy Rubin. Anyway, she's just gotta gotta check her sclera out. That's all. And Gun, uh, Gun shows up uh, at the meeting, and he's sort of interested in listening to Holden's theory about it being a black male because no white person. Uh, could go unnoticed. And Holden does qualify, qualify by saying he doesn't think all the cases are linked, but uh, he's he's very, very interested in the case. He says, I have a theory, and they present it as Holden being a little bit weird. It comes off as Holden being a bit strange and Wendy in particular being kind of skeptical of him. And And, and then Gunn walks in. Right. Their new boss. And Gunn is receptive to Holden. Yeah, Gunn sort of pulls a chair up and says, oh, I'd like to hear that. Let me hear your theory. And everybody's a little nervous. And Holden goes back into it. And Holden, his demeanor is, it is a bit strange, right? It's it's a little bit unlike old Holden. Well, he's it's, a little overconfident, I he's think. He's a little smarmy. Yeah. You know? And, you know, Bill kind of tries to put him in his place gently in front of Gunn. Like Bill says, you know, I'd have to do a lot more honest to God on the ground legwork. Like he kind of, he he does not endorse Holden's theory. He's gentler than Wendy. I mean, Wendy sort of says like, this is, this, you know, look, he's basically pulling this out of his ass. And uh, although there's common sense, logic to his assessment um you know they have to be able to back up what they say right wendy says i'm trying to remember wendy's exact words but i think she says not scientific yeah she says like nothing holden's shown here could be considered scientific like she kind of in a super polite academic way like bitch slaps him right and then bill's a little gentler but basically and the thing they say their conclusion uh the other you know Wendy and Bill's conclusion is that it's not a bureau case. And basically Ted makes the point that they've been asked by uh, the mayor in Atlanta to take a look at it. And um, they, at this point, he says they're going to have to follow it from afar. And he tells Holden to keep using his instinct. Right. Yeah. Gunn backs Holden. Like at the end of the day, like Gunn kind of, he gives Holden his tacit support. Right. Um, which is interesting. You know, even, though you Holden, can, 
you know, what he says is it is, he doesn't have that much. I mean, he comes out of the gate seeming like he's going to give him this great revelation. He says, I think this is a young black male and that's it. That's his whole, that's his whole profile. Right. But, you know, and as we hear later in this show and subsequent episodes, you know, like the blacks in Atlanta are worried about the clan. Right. So, yeah. and it's, and it's very, they, you know, it's a political lightning rod to say that this is being done by another black person. And even, well, beyond that, just the fact that nobody wants to admit that there's a serial killer on the loose because they're trying to make the city seem safer. They're trying to stem the flow of money out to the suburbs at this point. Right. Which is Build like up the a airport. giant roar. Um, at this point in in the U.S., there everybody's moving. There's de-urbanization of anybody with money. Um, so now we we cut to uh, a really interesting sequence where Kay, the bartender, and Wendy have a date, and uh, Wendy is definitely out of her element in Kay's bad neighborhood. Well, they just go bowling, which, you know, Wendy, there's not a lot of bowling at Harvard or wherever Wendy was. <laughs> right. But there's also like, like they, they take pains to show that Kay's neighborhood is sucky. It's like fire escapes and steel grates and cement and there's not a blade of grass anywhere. And Wendy comes fairly dressed up. It's unclear if she comes straight from work or not. But, you know, Kay is essentially in, in a T-shirt. So, yep. you know, they're, they're coming at this date from two very, very different places. And you could tell Wendy is, she's attracted to Kay, so she goes along, but she's definitely out of her element. Yeah, Wendy's nervous and Kay is not. And Wendy even asks her, you know, do you do this a lot? In other words, date. And Kay says, you know, well, yeah. And then, you know, Kay... They feel each other out, you know, figuratively. <laughs> <laughs> and Wendy's really uptight. Like, she won't even put on the bowling shoes. Yeah, Wendy's afraid she's going to catch a fungus from the bowling shoes. And Kay's <laughs> right, like, like, suit yourself. Like, right, she doesn't even refer to them as bowling shoes. She refers to them as proper footwear. <laughs> right. And, you know, you can imagine Kay doesn't even blink twice and puts on the bowling shoes. Probably put the bowling shoes on barefoot. You know, Kay's the person... Who's going to put something dirty in the bowling shoe, right? That somebody <laughs> else is going to catch. But, you know, the big difference is that, you know, this scene, you know, even more than their scene in the bar previously highlights that, you know, Kay is out. Like she's openly gay. Like she's not hiding. She's comfortable with who she is. You know, and and she doesn't care if people know that she's gay. And she's, you know, this is everything that Wendy is not. Kay's clearly gone through a lot and has come to the point of being openly out and not wanting to worry about who knows that she's gay. And she's Wendy is clearly still deeply closeted. And Kay tells her what her history is and why she's that way. She gives her a little a little uh short you know history and says she was married they had a kid and she left everything um because right. she, she wasn't did the being worst thing herself. in her life which right. was she, she walked away from true. her son right just to be true to herself and yeah. she's clearly sort of come through that and therefore she says you know that's the reason that yeah i work in kind of a divey bar and there's a bunch of soldiers but 
everything's I'm, I'm entirely honest and the job is honest and the soldiers and I even help them. Like sometimes I'm the only sympathetic ear they have the only person who's not judgmental. And, you know, so she kind of highlights these subtle and rather sophisticated reasons for where she is, why she's in the place she is professionally and personally. It's a little hard to believe that Wendy would allow Kay to kiss her in public. Like, it's not a gay bowling alley. There's men in the next aisle, in the next lane. Like, yeah. the scene well, ends a little with... Further away, but... Yeah. yeah, but again, like, it's very hard to believe that Wendy would allow that. Like, Wendy, who's so afraid of being discovered. Yeah, I mean, but I guess... I think that that in the light of that scene where Kay was so disarmingly honest with her, maybe Wendy just couldn't, she felt it too. It was too uncomfortable to put up a fight, even though she may have sort of felt in her gut that it, it was difficult for her. She may have been allowed kind of Kay to lead because of the honesty she just displayed and the sort of rough story that she has. And, you know, when they do kiss, like, even though it's a little out of focus, you are made to see that nobody notices. Like, the men in the background are bowling and don't even pay them any attention. Yeah, nobody cares. But And, you know, Kay is, sorry, Wendy is very affected by Kay's honesty in a way that lasts into future episodes, uh, not always to her benefit, but we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, and then... Um, we uh, we get back to Quantico, and they are preparing to go interview Elmer Wayne Hanley, um, who helped um, Coral, the so-called Candyman, kill uh, almost 30 young men, some of whom were his friends. Yeah. Um, so this is, I think... Um, an interesting case for the show to kind of go into because part of the, the whole point of this case is to really kind of allow Wendy to have some character exposition. Like the actual, the actual crime is not the focus of the episode as much as what happened with Wendy. Right. Right. So basically I think that this was supposed to be a bill, uh, bill and Holden's interview, but they go to, they get sent to Atlanta sort of abruptly by, um, uh, by Ted, the new boss, who basically has a he has a a way for them to go get involved in the Atlantic killing because there was a there's a ransom that's crossed state lines with a kid, and even though the, it may not be related to the case, it's sort of a pretense for for them to go down there and work on the on the serial killer case in Atlanta, and so Ted ships them down there. Actually, down to Atlanta. Uh, sorry, Gun. Uh, yeah, Gun ships him down there. Yeah, Ted Gunn. Yeah, so <clears> he <throat> so he ships them down there so they can uh, they can work on the case. But and but so it, Wendy and Agent Smith go to interview Henley, and they just kind of take it upon themselves. They don't ask permission. They just say like, "Fuck it, we're going to go do it." But but before we get to that point. You know, there's a, there's a, a setup to that scene where they interview Henley, where they're talking about the fact that, uh, you know, Coral is killing boys, and Henley was. There's a debate of whether Henley was taking yeah. part, and 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 right. Smith Agent says Smith. he says homosexuality 
is a deviance. And then Wendy points out that like, well, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Psychiatry no longer classifies as a disorder. And, you know, anybody paying attention could figure out at this point that Wendy's a little defensive at this point, but they're not paying attention. Like Holden looks up at her and doesn't say anything, but I think it's implied that they don't figure it out. Well, I think that, you know, they figure Agent Smith is going to say something stupid almost every time and that Wendy trying to correct him is just par for the course because they all would because he's a pain in the ass. I keep wondering why Agent Smith is still here. Like, in, like I understand the point his character serves, but it's it's a little hard as a viewer to justify like that he wouldn't say like, hey, I'd like transfer, you know, like maybe I'm better off in some other unit at this point. Like these guys all clearly hate me and I'm I'm more and more being excluded from important meetings. I wonder if it's hard to get rid of somebody. Like maybe maybe bureaucratically it's hard for to transfer somebody out unless you have some spe- specific reason. But maybe but right, but I guess if that person wanted to go. Right. right. Maybe but, they couldn't boot him, but maybe if he asked to go. Like I mean if I'm Agent Smith and I'm sitting down with these guys who do nothing but roll their eyeballs at me, like yeah. I, I'm seeing like if the field office in, you know, San Diego has an opening. I know, but maybe the Padre is just, you know, he doesn't <laughs> he doesn't really care. Um what was so, I gonna yeah. say? So yeah, oh yeah. So that's uh, the setup. And then they go. Well, but but importantly, though, they first get called into Gunn's office uh, and Smith is told not to come. Uh, and, and that's where that's where Bill and Holden get their marching orders to Atlanta. And Wendy, she's somewhere between Agent Smith and Bill and Holden. Like she's invited into the inner sanctum, but she's she's visibly excluded from the trip to Atlanta that she would rather go on and she's pissed. I mean, she's the one who kind of suggests like, Hey, let's go interview Henley. Like when they're riding back down in the elevator afterwards, Bill and Holden stand next to each other and she's standing a few feet behind them, like literally up against the corner of the elevator. Like she's, she's not really part of the core group, at least, at least at this scene. Yeah. I, I, she, she's not an agent. So, and she's sort of an advice. I mean, she's in the unit, but you know, you're not really sure of her exact place in the FBI. Right. So, she's, so she's she a little gone. Right. She's not, a, she's not actually an agent. So there, you know, she's, but, but she's bristling a little bit at that about not being involved. And she's always complaining. They don't follow the script and she right. sort of thinks, well, maybe, maybe I could do a better job interviewing them. Than and this is on the heels of her, you know, being called deviant. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is minutes after Smith has called her deviant to her face without even realizing he's done it. Right. Right. So she's she's a little, you know, she's got a little chip on her shoulder. Yeah. Um. So uh. So Bill and Holden head down to Atlanta, which is being run out of an abandoned, like the task force is being run out of an abandoned storefront. Um. And uh, not a lot is happening down there. Not a lot. The task force is kind of portrayed as something of a joke by cops who aren't particularly interested, with the exception of uh, the guy who wanted to be in BSU, whose name I can't remember. Right, the agent from Atlanta. Right, exactly. Who's always on point. Um, And, uh, you know, they meet the guys from the local field offices, and they're waiting for a call from a potential kidnapper. 
for one of the missing children. And that's kind of the only thing that they have going on. Right. And Bill and Holden are kind of there. It's really as a pretense, like they don't really, they're just coming in to see what traction they can get about the serial killings. Um, we then see uh, Agent Smith and Wendy on the plane. Yeah, I wonder if they just use the same plane set over and over and change the seats because they always have different seats, you know. Um, we, yeah. see, we see Smith and Wendy on the plane uh, heading to go talk to Henley. Um, and they're, they're planning to stick to the script. Like Wendy says, for once, we're going to get all our questions answered. <laughs> right. <laughs> Wendy has been irritated all this time because she thinks they're doing a crappy job interviewing people. Now she's like, now we're, now we have a chance to do this properly. Uh, you know and, what's going to happen with that. <laughs> <laughs> and they get into the, they get into the room with Henley uh, and and uh, Smith starts us off. You want to talk about Smith's attempt to conduct the interview? Well, Smith basically reads the script, so he he's almost he's almost you know non-interactive. So he basically starts out and and it just follows the script to the letter, and this goes awry rapidly because Henley basically says like, "I didn't do that, and I'm not interested, and I'm not talking about that." Yeah, and he kind of shuts Agent Smith down. Right, because it, you're not, you know, you can't follow the script. This is what, <laughs> this is what Wendy realizes in the next few minutes because right. you're talking to these guys. in a weird guys, way, Holden's been right all along. Yeah, I mean, you're basically beholden. Your conversation's beholden to these inmates to a large extent, and that varies depending on the person and the interview and the time and whatever. Who knows what, whether they had, you know, a bag of Fritos right before they came or not, or what? who knows? Right. But and Henley says all your questions stupider than shit. Yeah. Henley. And basically Smith is, he, he cannot, he just has no idea how to respond. Uh, yeah. he, he, he just tries to keep following the script. He asks, or, you know, so basically repeats the questions and it, it goes nowhere. And then Wendy kind of steps in uh, after a minute. Right. I mean, he can't even get his name right. Yeah. Right. Like, like the Smith can't even address him by his name properly. That's when Wendy steps in, when Smith can't even call him by the name he wants to be called. Yeah. So basically agent Smith gets yelled at by everyone and disliked by everyone, including the own, his own unit and, <laughs> and the serial killers they go interview. <laughs> it's a good scene. And the guy who plays Henley does a really good job. Yeah, they're they're no they don't have any bad actors on this show really. It's everybody's solid. And and Wendy kind of very quickly, you know, she 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 argues with Henley, but she gets him to start talking. Right. She departs from the script right away. Right. And he and, and he says you know, she says like, oh, your dad didn't think a lot about you and maybe, uh, you know, you're smart and capable and she throws a little flattery his way and she says that Coral saw that in him, right? Like maybe yeah. this was the appeal, like your parents didn't like you, right? this bad Coral. guy did, right? He, Coral was like your dad. Right, your surrogate father. And then yeah. that kind of gets him talking, even though he's combative on it, right? Yeah, well, he says he was, you know, how the hell do you know, basically? 
you know, and, and, but at least he's talking about it. And then Wendy drops a little bit of a interesting factoid. And when Wendy drops this interesting factoid, she does not realize, and she forgets for a moment that the recorder is running, right? She, who was so against having the transcript altered. Yeah. Right. right. And so basically her nugget is she says that I was in a similar uh, relationship to you and Coral and that I was with someone who was dominant and was in control and I tried to please her, you know, her. Right. And, and then agent Smith basically does like a visible double take and is sort of his in mouth the background, opens. right? He's basically his mouth is hanging open in the back, you know, behind her in the scene as what, she's talking. But what's interesting is Henley sees Smith's reaction. He tur- he clearly turns his head to the left. <clears throat> he sees Smith's reaction, and then he thinks Wendy is lying. He says bullshit, right? Like he that you're making this up to get at me. And then Wendy says, "No, no, no." I'm not. Right. Right. And then he's not sure, but it keeps him going at least. Right. It's, he, a, it's a really, it's one of the most complex scenes that they have done in this whole show because all this stuff is happening at once. Right. And in, in real time, you know, in one scene uh, quickly, you know, this is all over the, from the beginning of the interview to this point, it's about two minutes. Right. And then again, we see that Henley is smarter, right? Than we have uh, been made to think up until this point. Like his yeah. interaction with Wendy becomes much more complex. I read offline, by the way, that Henley had an IQ of 126 in real life. So mm-hmm. he was felt to be a very, very bright kid. And then all of a sudden, after Wendy lets loose with her story, Henley just starts talking, right? He, yeah. They stop asking questions. And for a few minutes, he starts talking about sort of the, why he did it, the limits of how far he went, why he killed Coral. Like then they get everything out of him. Like it, it literally, it breaks the ice and the whole thing moves forward. Yeah. He talks and he really um, talks. Right. And Wendy even gets, basically gets a diagnosis out of it because he basically says that she's asked him if it bothered him basically, like did the things that did these, these, torture this torture and these killings bother him and he says no i mean he basically reveals himself as a sociopath like he really doesn't have any empathy for them um and he doesn't feel like he's a murderer he says that the only person he murdered was coral even though he's intimately involved with abducting these people providing them to be murdered and he watches yeah and he's always around right and that's sort of the limits of uh that's the limits of, you know, how far he can go to accept what he's done. Right. And, you know, it's not that difficult for him because he really, he doesn't feel guilty. So he, it's easy for him sort of to dismiss it because he he doesn't really have the capacity for empathy. That's the way they portray him in the scene, at least. I read that in real life, um, you know, Coral was so bizarre in real life that some of the victims did not appreciate the danger they were in. Like he was so over the top and like the things that he was asking them to do were so wacky that some of the victims did them like not really knowing, you know, like what was happening. And and when, in the final one, when he brings a girl, right, he brings a girl, 
uh, when the when the, the he brings a girl and a guy and the guy is being assaulted, the girl said to Henley in real life, like, is he for real? Like, are we play acting? Like, what's happening here? Like, it was that hard for people to accept that this guy was actually murdering them. Right. Which is crazy. Um, the other thing that's amazing, too, about this case, and they don't really talk about it in the show, is that I think he killed 27 boys, all from a very small area, many from the same school. Yeah. Like, it's amazing that it went on as long as it did, and he was dumping most not all but almost all the bodies in one place yeah like it's amazing that it went on as long as it did to think that like you know with a teenage accomplice you know they could they could go on this long and not have someone spill the beans or get caught or do something dumb and it was kind of within a short time too i think the actual crimes were like within a year or less yeah the whole thing is insane they were killing somebody like every week or two yeah oh yeah 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 What's interesting, too, is that Coral teaches Henley how to kill someone. Like, he says, like, you got to shoot that person till they hit the ground. Right. And that's exactly what he does. He says he shot Dean Coral three times, and then he shot him three more times after he hit the ground. Right. Which is interesting that, like, like it's sort of getting at the mentor-mentee aspect of their relationship. And he says, I think he would have been proud of me before he died. That's what he yeah. says about Coral. He says, I think he was. I think he went out proud. <laughs> I mean, that's a really well-written scene. This, By the way, this is the best scene in the episode by far. Yeah, it's a good way scene. Way more interesting than anything that happens down Although in Atlanta. That, well, the last second, the last minute of the show is interesting, too. But, well, yeah, that's true. I guess that. But but in terms of writing, that's I guess oh, that's yeah. more plot. But this is this is very very well written. Henley's very interesting because he, he's as you alluded, you know, to as you alluded to, he's, he's rather unexpectedly interesting. And and then once they get going, he's smart and articulate, and he he even has some degree of insight. You know, despite the blinders that he's got on, he's got some insight. No, he he definitely does. He has insight and he's bright and he's articulate and, you know, he's even rather articulate about his lack of empathy. Yeah. Although the he doesn't interview, just shrug his shoulders. Right. Although the interview ends where he gets really angry because he feels like Wendy is saying he's gay and yeah. he basically sort of explodes and he yells into the microphone that he's not gay and that, you right. know, don't, don't try to use your story to make me out to be gay. Right. Uh, it's interesting. So he kind of believes Wendy's story, also in a way, despite. Well, I don't know if he does. Like he calls maybe, it maybe her. Not. He calls it her Lezzy story. Like he, right. he's not so sure. Like I, I don't know if he believes it. Well, Agent Smith doesn't because it's too far out of his universe. Yeah, because when they're Smith in the car, doesn't say a fucking word this whole time. Like he is sitting there rigid, like like. Agent- Things weren't going well for Agent Smith because he botched the his attempt at the interview, and then Wendy admits to being, you know, a sinful uh, homosexual. Um, and and then when they're in the car um, afterward, he's basically asking her, "How did she come up with that fantastic story? You know that <laughs> that can't possibly be true. Uh, that you know that she had a she has a she had a dominant girlfriend." Um, you know, and, and how could she come up with that so quickly to, to in order to be able to interact with, with Henley? Like, right. how, how could she do that? That and was he says amazing. Something like, I'm glad we got it on tape or something. And then she goes, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great moment because, 
yeah, you really see her think. He says, like, well, he uh, Smith says, like, you know, and and especially, you know, having all your colleagues be able to listen to it, you know, like, how are you so, <laughs> how are you so, you know, I was so terrible, but you were so great, you know, you were. <laughs> you know, you came up with that right on the spot and she tells him, don't worry about it. And he says, yeah, but you know, all my colleagues are going to hear me, you know, hear how terrible I was. And then she thinks, "Uh oh, don't, (laughs) but you know, just before that scene though, I think it's worth, it's worth saying that Henley does says he feels remorse. Like he says that he's glad that Coral is off the street and the kids aren't being abducted and he feels remorse about what he did. That's how the scene ends, which is sort of an interesting way uh, to wrap him up. Yeah, but you don't know if that's real. I mean, he doesn't really give that sense at all. Well, you don't know, but he says it. Like he, yeah. you know, he, he comes out and says that he does feel remorse. So yeah, whether he feels it or he just, not, I guess it's left to the viewer to decide. That's after he, you know, I just spent the last minute or two explaining how he doesn't have any empathy for the victims. Yeah. So we cut back to Atlanta where uh, Nancy's calling Bill and he's a little busy to get to the phone. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and she calls him like 10 times. Right. And then they, they get a visit from the commissioner. Yeah. <laughs> Who they don't really realize that the commissioner's goals might not be the same as their goals. They think the commissioner is coming there to kiss their ass and help and is interested in solving the crime per se in the same right. way that they are. And he encourages them because when, when Holden starts talking, he says, huh, that's fascinating or that's very interesting. Or he, he basically pulls more out of Holden just by giving him a couple of words of encouragement. I had right. no idea that you guys were able to do all this. Right. And Holden spills his whole theory. Yep. It's a right. black serial killer. It's a young male. All the crimes, most of the crimes are linked. Right. And he, he says it's little, just one killer. Right. It's someone in the community, whatever. And then. Um, then Bill takes a call. Yeah. And then the commissioner. Uh, then they find out, that, you know, basically like the commissioner is. Uh, he really, he basically tells him to beat it because there's no more federal crime. Yeah, right. They're effectively rejected. Right. And he can do that, apparently. Um, and, and it turns out, you know, basically the commissioner has no interest in muddying the political waters by having a serial killer, a black serial killer, having any of it out. And so these layers of Atlanta politics are more revealed. And, you know, it kind of turns out that the women who Holden talked to the mothers of the victims probably, you know, probably right. Holden also goes to tell him he's back right before that, you know, like Holden goes to the, to the rest of the barbecue restaurant and tells him he's there to stay. And now he's got the full resources of the FBI. Right. And, um, and, and then like the next second they're kicked out. (laughs) Right. Unceremoniously. Right. Or as, as Hannibal Lecter would say, they are handed their hat. Yep. Um, Bill finally calls Wendy. Yeah. Who's got the detectives and cops in the house. Yeah, it's, and it's a bit worrisome because they want to talk to Bill's autistic kid. Right, and basically says, you need to get back here now. Like, these cops are the detective. They're in the house. They're not leaving. Right. Get on a plane. 
Right. So Bill heads back to Virginia. Right. But importantly, Bill lies. Yeah. Right? Bill, he right. says, he says, I have a family emergency. Um, and he says that like Nancy's my his, his wife's mother fell. Nancy's mom took a fall. So he makes up some sort of bullshit story so that they're like, yeah, sure, man, do what you got to do. Right. Th right. Then is the scene, by the way, where, 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 uh, Smith and Wendy are driving and she realizes she, uh, spilled on the, on tape. Uh, and then there's a brief scene where Holden goes back to the black women, um, right. and says that he's there officially. Uh, and, and this is where they, like, he hears from these women that they believe it's just the KKK. Like they believe that like half the police force in Atlanta used to be KKK and, you know, you could see that Holden, it is dawning on Holden how, how difficult it is going to be to sell his theory down there. Like, nobody warms up to this idea. Nobody. Yeah. And then they give, uh, they, give, uh, they give him a little bit of cornbread on the way out. Yeah, for money. <laughs> yeah, you, it's sell funny, him a little yeah, you think that you think that she's being nice and then like he has to buy the cornbread. <laughs> well, it was smart because then he gets kicked out of town. So it was free yeah. cornbread for nothing. Well, you know, by the way, the, the second time the food looks good in Atlanta, that cornbread looked good, man. Like that cornbread and the saran wrap. I've eaten that I, a million times. I bet you that place is good. Yeah. Um, uh, and then there's just a brief scene where uh, the kidnapper in Atlanta doesn't call, sort of furthering their belief that, uh, you know, the kidnapper theory is a bunch of crap and it's a killer. The commissioner comes. Uh, Kicks him out. Well, and he says to the mother of the missing kid, like, oh, we're doing everything we can. and We'll get Earl, your boy, back safe. Um, and uh, then we come you know, to the, to the big scene where they are booted from Atlanta. Like he basically says, well, thanks for coming, but get out of here. Yep. And then we finish, uh, with Bill arriving at home and I, you know, I got to tell you, I'll let you describe this scene, but, but, you know, you and I in the last episode or two actually were kind of critical of the show and said, like, look, it's too coincidental, like that she opens, a, she's selling a house and there's somebody killed there. And you made the joke and, you know, like, oh, if they go to the shopping mall, there's going to be a, you know, a ritual killing. And then we find out that this is not a coincidence. Go ahead. You want to describe the scene? Yeah, this is the big kind of like surprise. Reveal. Yeah. Yeah. So, um. Bill gets home and the cops are all in the house and clearly things don't look good. I mean, you just get the sense something happened. Right. The detectives and, on the couch, there's an armed cop in the room. Right. And so basically Wendy says that not Wendy, sorry, Nancy, um, Nancy, Bill's wife says, you know, that she was doing what he said. She was waiting for Bill to get there. They weren't going to talk to the kid, but the kid kind of like, heard what they were saying about the crime scene and the lockbox and whatever. And the kid just walked out to where the cops were and volunteered that he, he opened that he opened the um, house for some older kids in the neighborhood he was hanging around with. And that, um, you know, he basically provided them access and they were playing with this younger kid and he somehow was accidentally killed perhaps accidentally. 
Um, and that Bill's son gave him the idea to stage the scene and put the kid on a cross and make it right. look like a ritual and, killing. And you don't know a lot. You don't know the details of what happened. Were they roughhousing and the kid got killed or did they intentionally lure the younger boy there to be killed? You don't know, but what's amazing is, you know, clearly the first thing you think about is the fact that he was looking through Bill's files. He see, you know, he, he right. and, we, up, and we know that in, in a prior episode, he'd seen a crime scene photo. Right. So you think like Bill's first Bill's thought without saying anything is just like, this is my fault. Like he picked this up. He learned this from me indirectly from my work. And he basically helped commit a crime by learning things from my job. Well, and, and, and further, you know, we had talked in uh, the last episode about, you know, when Brian came out and he had wet himself. And remember we had talked about like, that's part of the triad, right? Starting yeah. fires, hurting animals and bedwetting. And, you know, like Bill is protective of his son, but he's he's smart and savvy enough to kind of recognize that. And, you know, the kid was saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And, you know, we all thought that he was talking about he's sorry because he wet his pants, but he's he's really apologizing there because he's sorry about his role with the kid. Right. So yeah. that scene, you know, we we correct we you know we all misinterpreted because as we were led to. And now like in retrospect, that scene has a completely different meaning. Yeah. Right. And the the show ends with Bill and Nancy on the back porch just hugging and Nancy is crying. And, you know, Bill realizes how far down the hole they are, right? They are in the soup, as I say. Yeah, and it, it really is quite a turn on the episode. It's not something you'd predict. No, no, and it's an interesting it's an interesting way to bend the arc about their son, right? Because you know, in season one, he wasn't doing well. In season two, we see him playing with other kids. He plays a little football in church. He's talking more. Like you kind of feel like everything is on the upswing, and then at the end of episode four, we find out that nothing is on the upswing, right? And the worst possible direction, right, is the one that's been chosen. Yeah. It's a really, really strong episode. You know, it's funny because I had read about the Atlanta child murders, or, or as the FBI called them, at kid for years. And I was kind of excited when they were finally getting to the at kid part of the story. But really, it's the least interesting part of the episode you know henley is super interesting and the finale with brian is really like like you said it's just unexpected right Whew. such a cheery show you know <laughs> yeah but they really got back into gear with this episode it was really good no i agree i agree it's, it's a little it's a little unrelenting you know what i mean like like again i, I said it before and i'll say it again like we need debbie like a Debbie in this show, like just to have that little bit of pressure valve where you know, the characters could sort of talk about things in a little bit more of a distant manner. And we don't get that. Like this series is like this season is building an in intensity and there's no release valve for the steam under pressure here. Yeah. You know, poor Bill. I keep thinking poor Bill, you know, from all this smoking and his steaks, he's just going to keel over. <sighs> poor Bill. 
And by the way, you know, this show emphasizes really also how much, you know, in season one, Holden's the star. Like in season two, like that's blurred. Like Bill is as much the star as Holden. Um, Holden's and, barely in this episode. And Wendy I mean, and uh, even Agent Smith, like their roles are much more expanded. Like it kind of went from being about Holden to being an ensemble cast right between yeah. season one and season two. And, you know, I'm trying to think of other shows have done that and been able to successfully pull that off. Right. Because if you're going to shift the focus away from the protagonist, you got to give them enough to stay with. And like, we've talked about it before in other podcasts. I don't think you watch it, but did you watch orange is the new black? Uh, not the whole thing. Cause the first season is about Piper. Like the first yeah. season is almost exclusively about Piper, Piper's dilemmas from Piper's point of view. And by the second and especially the third season, Piper's just one of many characters. Even though she's first in the billing, it becomes about all the women in the prison and they're able to pull it off. And that's kind of what I feel like is happening here. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to think of another show that did that. I don't know if I can think of another one off the top of my head that pulled that off. You know, usually they have to do that if a main character leaves the show or the actor dies, but here they, they're not doing that. And like you said, John Groff is barely in this episode, right? He's got yeah. a few scenes, but he's not the focus. And the big, big scenes of the episode don't involve him in the slightest. Right. So it's interesting. Whew, man, that is light. That is a lighthearted, cheery episode. <laughs> Yeah, it was great though. I think I need I think I'm gonna go like lay down with the with the window shades drawn and the, the, the blankets over my head now. <laughs> Eat a glass of whiskey. <laughs> right. With Bill. <laughs> and a cigarette. Oh man. All right. Well, All we'll right. be back next time. Now yeah, next episode is a big episode. Like like if you think a lot happens in this episode, wait till you see episode five. Like episode five, like it's really a double episode, but we'll talk about that next time. All right, we'll see you okay. guys back next time for season two, uh, uh, the beginning of our discussion of episode five. Thanks. <laughs>